Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. My daughters are using all these free things, apps, share screens, talk to other, text each other, and FaceTime and all this, and we weren't using any of it in hospitals. I mean, how insane is that? From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. Welcome to part two of my conversation with Dr. David Langer, chairman of the Department of Neurosurgery at Lenox Hill, co-founder of Playback Health, and rock star of the critically acclaimed Netflix series, Lenox Hill. If you've listened to part one, and I hope you did, because it'd be weird if you didn't, there's such a richness into David's humanity and his approach to medicine beyond the biology of the patient, the caregiver, and their loved ones. In this episode, we're going to dive a little deeper into David's passions of the digital health tech sector with his startup, Playback Health, which is literally putting humanity back into the doctor-patient relationship. You know, I've seen a ton of, quote, innovation in my time, but this is real and it's amazing. And you can check out Playback Health online at playbackhealth.com. But there's a much deeper dive into the Netflix series, his newfound notoriety and adoration. David does not think of himself as a celebrity, but to the thousands of lives he's changed for the better, perhaps he's more of a superhero. With that, enjoy part two, the exciting conclusion of my two-part episode with the one and only Dr. David Langer. So we've mentioned this word playback several times um, in the first series of our conversations, and I want the listeners to know that this is going to become something uh, emotional for me because when I first met you and learned about it through our mutual friends, it hit me in a way that I wasn't expecting. I'm 25 years out of brain surgery. I am so beyond the emotions of that moment and the life-altering six months to live. I'm 21-year-old kid experience as a wizened 46-year-old man at this point. But the one memory I have of that time, which was reenacted not because of me in the film 5050 that was published by Seth Rogen uh, and Evan Goldberg, and um, that was a seminal pop culture film, was the time I was wheeled away from my parents and I got a chance to say goodbye. And I didn't know if I'd be alive to ever see them again when they wheeled me away from my parents with my two A-lines hooked up to 75 different things in 1996. And they sat in that waiting room alone for eight hours with no contact with anybody, desperate to know if I was going to be okay, if I was going to live, if I was going to come out of this in some form or fashion of myself. And the grief 
that I felt as a survivor to my parents having gone through that was something that I held inside me and carried for years until I had my, my gestalt, you know, series of acceptances through survivorship. And when I learned about this app, which does many, many things, but at least for me emotionally, it did one thing I wish that was there for my parents. It would allow them to basically FaceTime by today's parlance with someone like you, with my neurosurgeon in the operating room at certain points in time to let them know we're doing all right, he's going to be okay. Just the idea that they could have been told anything in those eight hours to give them some sense of they're ready to throw up for eight hours because their son might die. That really struck a chord with me. And, and whenever anyone says, man, that's something I wish that I had and something that someone today doesn't know they need, let's discuss where the idea, obviously the need makes so much sense, but where did the original idea come from to create this I hate calling it a solution. It's humanity. You're creating a level of human dignity that didn't exist before. I don't know. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Just say your, your magic eight ball. Tell me what the future lies. It was a series of, um, in 2000s, I was always an Apple guy and I hated PCs. This is, this We're going to agree on way by. more than I thought. Yeah. So when I got into health, into medicine, when I moved to New York in 1998, I was immediately on a PC and I, I used to have two computers well, before there was Sonos, you know, when the internet was growing and um, we, I had all these CDs in my, these circular CD carousel. That my, stands for compact disc, disc, kids. Compact disc format. And we used to have these carousels. And the trouble is you can never find them. There's no way to, no way to search them. You, when, you could have their titles and crap, but you couldn't search. So you were always playing the same music over and over again. And I realized if I uploaded my CDs into my computer with, through a CD drive, I could basically catalog them better, throw them away because they took up a lot of room. And with a simple red to mic jack, you know, uh, a, a yellow uh, red or white, to, white red to mic jack, I could play computer, use my computer as a stereo system. And so I had done an iMovie course in the new Apple store in Soho. iMovie, wow. Yeah. Okay, so we're the, throwing back today big. The new the Apple store in Soho, I think, opened up around 2003, 2004. And our, I took a course down there on how to use iMovie because my son was born in 98 and I want to make movies of my kids. My daughter was born in 2003. And what I did was I went down there for like, I used to go down there after work and I took this course and I used the, the format. And I got really facile with, you know, video and audio and editing. And then um, I hired a guy named Ken Court to help me build a Apple-friendly stereo in my home. And especially J the high-def TVs had just come out. So my TV became my computer and my stereo and we had a, a Bluetooth mouse, and I can now play my, all my songs with no CD player in my, in my apartment on my television. And this was like earth shattering. And we probably should have formed a company back then, but <laughs> I'm a doctor. So Ken, I became close with Ken. Um, I used to pay him to do that stuff, but he had his own Apple consultancy. And around 2006, I started realizing that when patients, there was, they made the transition from film to CDs, radiology. So patients used to come with film, when they came with the, the compact those, disc, the big giant, like yeah. larger than a newspaper sized, yeah, right, the envelopes. Yes, the big envelopes. And so they'd come with the CDs. Well, you'd stick the CD in your computer, you'd play it for them, you'd show them the stuff, and you'd give the CD back, and they'd leave with the same CD. And this, this is like insane. We're putting the we're putting the pictures on a monitor, 
and they they go home and they look at the thing themselves. They have no idea what they're looking at. And you tell them they had an aneurysm or a brain tumor and they weren't hearing you because they their they brain turns off. Yeah. Going back to 50-50, that's that scene with Michael Joel. Yeah, where well, everything goes Charlie Brown yeah, teacher. That's exactly. so accurate. So accurate. So it was like, you know, I knew the QuickTime could do screencasting, and but I didn't have an Apple computer yet. And then in 2007, the Apple changed their chip from the Motorola to the Intel chip. And you could not you could run emulation software on an Apple machine. And that was it. Because now I got rid of all my legacy PC shit. And I installed all the legacy software, the hospital software, an Apple device. Because I could run a PC emulated environment on my Apple. Yeah. Then I could go and I could throw a CD in there. I could play it for the patient at the in, in my office. I could record the screen because QuickTime... For Apple, you could do a screen recording. And then what I would do is I... Those, that's like a hack within a hack. Well, that's even worse because they were huge files. There was no way to get them to the patient. Mm-hmm. You put them in a little USB, but then you had to have those. So we were burning CDs and giving them back. And that took like 10 minutes to burn you know, burn a CD. Remember those days. So, you know, we did that for a while. It worked very, very well. Um, but it wasn't scalable. I showed it to the hospital. They said, how are we going to make money off it? Which is like everything else. Screw empathy. How are we going to make money off it? That's all they care about. I said, I don't know how to make money off it. This was the right thing to do. And so it morphed into podcast. Uh, we, we had podcast producer, which was, a, a, was in the Apple iOS at the time. And podcast producer basically was, it, what it did is you can make a movie on your, on your desktop and it would immediately transcode that data into different formats on a server. If you had to buy your own server and we basically, then it would spit it out based on we're looking at an iPhone or a PC or a Mac. And we, we used podcast producer for a while. We generated all these cool, like um, color coded things, or you know, when you like an iMovie, when you make the background, it's had, it had you know Roosevelt neurosurgery, Dr. David Langer, and the date, and it would open up, and it's like you know, like like a movie would open up, and then they'd see their their video. But we had to do those. We had to create a tiny URL and send patients an email by hand, and they would hit the tiny URL just like YouTube, and they download the. This is MacGyver level stuff that well, should not have had to be. But we knew that first of all, mobility wasn't really was it's in its infancy. There was no cloud yet. And patient experience was still... And no broadband at the home. No. And patient ex- the whole concept of empathy and patient experience in hospitals was yet to be discovered, um, which says it all. Yeah. So North Shore recruited me in 2010, and I told him I wasn't going to go without Ken, that I saw this as a, a huge, made potentially impactful thing we could do. And Ken I was making good money working for himself, so I had to convince him to pay him you know, a decent amount of money. And so I, you know, they, I, but I said I wasn't coming unless he was recruited. And um, so when they remember they got, I got a call, they were like, uh, Dr. Langer, um, we'd love, we're ready to send you your contract, but can you, um, we, need doc, we need Mr. Court's CV. I was like, he didn't give you a CV? No, no, we've been calling, we've been unable to get it. So I called Ken, I'm like, Ken, we need your CV. He goes, I don't have one. I go, why not? He goes, I never made one. So would you make it and send it to me? So he sent his CV. He never graduated college. Ooh. So I, I said, oh my God, this is a problem. Because the Northwell is a typical bureaucratic administrative organization. They have no job description. Where you have to, he had to have a master's to get to the, the price point that, that, that uh, he was going to be paid. So they said, we can't hire him. I'm like, why not? They go, well, he doesn't have a master's degree. I was like, I don't care. I'm not coming unless you, you hire him. So, well, this can't do it like that. David. listen, did Bill Gates graduate, graduate college? Did Steve Jobs graduate college? The answer is no. And so... They kind of weaken. I said, if you don't have people like this in healthcare, you're never going to change, make changes because you keep recruiting the same old people. And they did it. So Ken comes. We installed- Was that like the first time ever that that happened? I don't it think it's ever like happened again. The grand again. cave of all things. Yeah. I don't think it's ever happened again. 
Kudos we, for that. We brought our server with us. We got it installed in the data center. We started using Podcast Producer. And then the next epiphany was how bad the discharge was. So I was making videos in the office, but it's hard to make a company just by making office videos because doctors are really busy. And if you're really, who's going to sit down and do this? I'm, I'm crazy, right? But the vast majority of surgeons or anybody's not going to sit there making videos for their pay, although it's really easy to do in our workflow now. So I realized that I hated the discharge process. The discharge was terrible. That you'd usually have some nurse who knows nothing about your diagnosis or your treatment going over some instructions to get popped out of the, out of the EMR, which is the electronic medical record, and you're given a piece of paper that you lose when you go home, and all the questions that you asked the nurse you forgot, or if your family who's actually required to take care of you when you go home isn't there, they weren't here to hear the discharge. That's why people go home and freak out. And so I started recording them. And so I would make a video of the discharge instructions where I'd go over exactly what your diagnosis the explainer is. video yeah. you didn't know you needed. Yeah. And then Cleveland Clinic heard about us and we they had a ventures group and they liked the idea of a video discharge. This is now, we're in about 2012, 2013. And then in 13, I got recruited to go to Lennox. And I this was my chance because there was no legacy there and it was zero and I knew I had Ken and we knew we had a great idea. And now we had a brand new department to blow this up in the department. And so we did a lot of really creative things with IT and, and Lennox. It's one of the reasons why we've been successful. But this gradually morphed and got better and better and better. It became, we renamed it, it was called Medquarius. Then it was Goat Rodeo Company. And then finally, around three years ago, now we've got a new good thing that happened was that the mobility is on an all-time high. I mean, 90% of Americans are going to have smart devices within the next two years. The cloud became... Um, ubiquitous and patient experience became important to healthcare after the Affordable Care Act. But also the emergence of the digital health Silicon Valley universe was reaching that, a, a that peak. That came at this after point. us. Right. That was like that started in like oh five, six, seven, like we our mutual friend Missy yeah. Krasner and I met at the dawn of yeah, what was, they used to call digital health. That's like Model T. Yeah, that was literally now and then we're getting to like Chevy Impala eighty yeah. eight station wagon and then finally we're getting hitting Bugatti these right. days, but you're not Bugatti yet. Eh, yeah, <laughs> maybe old, like 1918 Bugatti. Yeah. Like pandemic Bugatti. Right. But I think that the perfect storm of patient experience, cloud, and mobility is what's allowing us to be valued now. The truth is, as much as I hate the concept of money being a shiny object, without the ability to make money, you can't survive. Right. And you could have the greatest idea ever, but if you can't support itself for its a cost, it doesn't work. And so now all of a sudden there was this imperative to solve some problems that nothing else could solve. And my, my CEO, Greg Odlin, who's an old friend of mine, it's kind of like George Clooney and um, Randy Gerber. Randy Gerber and George uh, um, Clooney. Clooney are on the beach in, at, in Cabo for years. They were like, had houses next to each other. And they kept talking about, they, they came up with this amazing idea of creating tequila called Casamigos. which was like one of the best tequilas out there. Well, Greg and I were sitting on the beach in Amagansett for years, and he kept telling me, I kept telling him about playback over, not playback yet, but telling him about the this idea. idea. So Greg left his hedge fund because he was sick and tired of Wall Street, not knowing he was going to work for with me. But after seven months, he wasn't really doing much. He had a tail on his contract. He was protected financially, at least for the beginning. And his son was my intern. And he kept telling his dad about how cool this was. So Greg asked me in October of 17 if he could work with me. And I, I was said, yeah. He's my best friend. I trust him implicitly. And then he basically made a company. We pulled out of North Thor. We no longer had, uh, you know, we were no longer beholden to the, to the big daddy. And he, he came up with a name. He and his wife came up with the name Playback, which was perfect, much better than Medquarius. <laughs> Too many uh, syllables anyway. Yeah. And, he, uh, and he, we raised money and we got the right software people. And uh, 
We're kicking it. But this was an empathy play. I want to put my patient hat fully Correct. on squarely. This is an empathy play. You know, at Stupid Kids, we would say, make this suck a little less, right? This isn't solving the world's problems. This isn't fixing global warming. This isn't saving Darfur, Chandler George Clooney. But this makes one little thing suck a whole lot less by adding humanity and empathy to an otherwise really shitty experience. Well, the truth is most great sort of great companies start with a simple idea. And we were solving a very specific problem that patients don't remember what you say to them. Whether it's at the bedside, in the office, people can't communicate very well because if I tell you something and you're gone the next day, it's, it's, it's evaporates. And especially in healthcare now where we just have, you know, when I was a resident, you were there every day. You had like one day off a week and you were on call every other, every third night and you were still in the hospital the next day. Well, the, all the new reg, residency regulations, number one, if you're on call the night, you go home the next day, so you're not even there. And if you weren't there that day, then when you come the next day, no matter how smart you are, you can never remember anything because you weren't there. So by recording it and making it easily available to the, to the patient care team, by recording it and making it easily available to the patient and their family members and the care providers when they go home, you memorialize moments. You basically allow transitions of care and information to be exchanged and, and, and remembered more easily and shared. And that with mobility, and it's like, kind of like, it's like Instagram or Facebook for healthcare, except the, instead of having a friend, the patient is the friend and everybody's built around them. And there can be chapters or information that's only shared by the friends, like talking behind the person's back. And ultimately it can be an audio or a video or a text or a, or a scan or any documents you can put in this and create a deliverable on a mobile device for a patient, their family, and the healthcare providers that allows easy communication and a much better way, not just of empathy, but of care. Remember, empathy really doesn't matter. Ultimately, the outcome of the patient matters. It's bad for you as the patient, but it's not what the whole, if I was making a purely empathy thing that didn't show that it was beneficial in some other way, now, because patient experience has value now financially to health systems, Empathy matters purely because it's making money for hospitals because patients will rank you. But it's not, empathy is not going to really make you better, as crazy as that sounds. If you have cancer, I have a, here's a choice. You have a cure of cancer with a total jerk for a doctor who's going to cure you, or you have a super empathetic doctor that doesn't have the right, have the same drug. Where are you going to go? You're going to go to the guy that can cure you. You're, you accept the fact that he's a jerk and you just take your hit and you move on. And you may not like him, and you may be upset and crying when you go home because he didn't answer your questions, but you're cured. That's the problem. And so empathy is an add-on for most physicians, but it's essential to the well-being of our environment, our teams, and the way we behave. And that's why it gets the short end of the stick. Back with our guest, after the break. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So rounding out this extraordinary conversation with you, I'm going to reiterate what I said at the top of the show in that this solution came out of a desire to improve and enter a white space that was on no one's radar to fix from the institutional setting down to the patient. And my perspective is it gives the caregivers access to have a better relationship with the care team of their loved one through multidisciplinary media it's not it's facebook in the sense of the mobility and the access and the ease of having a device that's so accessible to you personally but it really is i mean i i, I don't overuse the word revolutionizing because that's kind of a steve jobs thing but it is in a sense completely disrupting another silicon valley word doctor patient relationships and yes it has tied to the emr yes it makes your team at the hospital more lucid and aware of the sequence of events that would give this person a better outcome and their family less anxiety and and stress and maybe even increase compliance and adherence and give them the dignity of their life back when shit happens and your reaction every time we talk to you and your team and greg like that much more of an aha moment coming from the patient community is the how the hell did I not know this could be a thing to not just make my life easier and better for my loved one, for myself, but to just ease so many burdens when the Charlie Brown teacher shit happens all the time. What what has been your personal, not professional, you came to market with an idea, it's working. Well, remember, well, really another epiphany was my daughters are using all these free consumer available software things, apps, share screens, talk to each other, text each other and FaceTime and all this. And we weren't using any of it in hospitals. I mean, how insane is that? It's the ideal place for it. And so ultimately, the reason why this works is because it's like a consumer level product that allows the doctor to basically give the patient what they need and the family and each other. And um, we're not, we've never really taken advantage of tech. You know, EMR in, in hospitals is, if anything, a burden. It's been a valuable asset for other reasons, but it's, it's burdensome for the healthcare provider. We haven't really created tech that's patient-facing, that's mobile, and that has the same ease of use as a Facebook or an Instagram. That we're, that all, and our culturally, our next generation, is, that's, that's normal to go, and no one knows people's phone numbers or... You know, people don't even make phone calls anymore. They're making videos and texts, and that's the way they're going to want to communicate growing up, whether they're a doctor or a patient. And so this is maybe a little bit ahead of its time that way because it's like the 20, 30-year-old now that's always had this, and they're not quite finished medical school yet. So we're still ahead of our time. But these consumers are going to demand it. We intend on continuing to improve ourselves. We've been at this for 13 years. It's not like this is an overnight sensation, although it always seems that way. Well, yeah, that, you're an overnight success that just took 13 years. Correct. 
That's what sometimes happens. Sometimes yeah. it takes, everything takes more time and more work than you think. Let's talk about Netflix. And I think what's unique about not just another Netflix show, I would imagine under other circumstances, a quote unquote doctor that isn't you, a quote unquote egomaniacal God complex doctor would chomp at the bit to be celebrityized by accident by Netflix. You're coming at this from a place of like authentic humility and empathy in your practice. What was it like to be recognized? I mean, cameras showing up and editors and producers, like Hollywood comes calling for all the right reasons. And then you're now in this grand spotlight and the show, of, I mean, we're going to plug the show, of course, because I, I've seen it and it's amazing. And it, it is everything that I wished that I had had being treated like a piece of meat. My parents pizza like a piece of meat in the 90s. This is the way it kind of should be. And it's, it's like the ebb tide. It's revealing what all the crap under the ocean that we haven't noticed yet. Let's work backwards. It's celebrities are really that great. You know, I, it's interesting sampling this as, you know, Really is an outsider. I'm not a celebrity. I'm a doctor. Uncle Liberty? Maybe. <laughs> but I mean, you're, I'm still a physician. And uh, I think that, you know, I'm not going to lie to you. The idea of celebrity is really, really great. Like, oh my God, they're going to, people are going to recognize me. That's so exciting. Or I'm going to be asked to do a podcast. Or I'm going to be on Johnny Carson or, you know, whatever. Rip yeah. Johnny Carson. You know, but first of all, COVID put a big damp on the opportunities, even ahead of time, when they were planning, Netflix was planning like a gala thing and a red carpet thing and our health system was going to have a thing at Madison Square Garden Theater and we were going to be trotted out and, you know, and waving at people and it sounded exciting. Well, it all got shut down. All that stuff, gone. Um, and I was disappointed um, because that's the fun part. All the hard work we put in that, but that's the fun part. But right. in the end, you know what? I realized being recognized in the street, people see you through their own eyes. They don't know who you are. Now, they know a lot more about me because that's who I am. I'm not acting. Right. In fact, the beauty of this is I really developed an incredible um, respect for actors, which I hadn't had before. Because I realized that when I saw the show, it's a persona they made about me. They made fiction out of nonfiction. Whereas with an actor, they're making nonfiction out of fiction, like Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. And, 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 and so in the end, it's a privilege. And it's, it's, you're basically able to make a message. And you're able to deliver, I was delivering who I was and I was able to transfer to the world, you know, what we do every day and how I think. That's a profound opportunity and incredibly humbling. And in fact, what's been so valuable for me that the celebrity stuff is not, it's not that great. I'll tell you right now, my daughter watched the show. She started to cry the first time she saw it because she didn't see me that way. You know, she saw me as dad and Grey's Anatomy. Not dad is doctor dad and that I have, I'm actually really, truly serious at work and I have issues and they're, it's not easy all the time. And so that reaction I realized was what celebrities must go through. Like if you have a bad show or your part isn't who you are or you're just waiting for the next part, imagine how difficult or somebody is a critic says you suck. The rejection factors. Yeah. I mean, you got to deal with your kids and their friends and what they say about them. And the beauty of this was it was just me. Whether people liked it or not didn't make a difference. They, people turned out to like it a lot. But it released from me some of the, the inherent self-doubt of that I was doing the right thing. And What, you really had doubt all these years? Only because it never, no one ever made it seem like it was important. It's like the same thing. It's like empathy. You know, no one, you can't make money doing it. And since everybody's trying to make money and that's what's important is your title and how many cases you're doing and how many papers you've written. That's how you get feedback, what, what freaking society you're in or what, 
you know, what committee you're on, you right. know, which never really sat well with me anyway. But, you know, I'm not going to lie to you. I did some gold star things along the way. You had to to get these kinds of jobs. But in the end, it just released me from that. And I, and I, the, the truth is there's been a relative recognition of the importance of this. And it's come because of the public, public sees it for what it is. I'm not acting. It's who I really am. And when I see someone in the street and they say, are you the guy just walking over here? Hey, great show. Thank you. It's nice. I'm not going to lie to you. It's fun. But it's not, doesn't change your life. No. If that's what you're looking for, like it doesn't get you anything. It doesn't make you happier. It doesn't make you smarter. It doesn't make you have to work any less. It's a nice thing. I'm happy to take a picture or a selfie with somebody or send somebody a video. But I'm kind of like, I, I, don't, I, don't, I really don't need it. I'm glad I didn't do all that red carpet stuff. I don't need it for that. And in the end, what really was the most impactful thing, I've always been comfortable with myself. I'm very self-confident, but I'm at a different level now. I really can't explain it. It's just, it's remarkable. And it has to do with the way I'm filtering this and, and using it for the right reasons and not trying to make money off it or, you know, go use this for some other, other reason other than because it's really a reflection of the way I feel and the way I behave. So the eager young minds of tomorrow, the pre-nurses, the pre-meds, the current residents, interns, fellows in their 20s, maybe early 30s are going to watch this documentary. What do you want them to take away from this that might be missing in their lives? What white space is this filling? Not, hopefully not, I can be a Netflix star, but hopefully what, what is it you're passing down to the next generation. Well, the Netflix thing is, is a one-off. I mean, I don't, I, this is never, I don't, it's gonna be very hard to see how this could happen again. Even if they do a second season, I'm really concerned. I don't even necessarily want to do it. I mean, I'll do it because I think it'd be a nice thing to do, but I just don't think it's gonna have the impact, the same impact with COVID and Black Lives Matter and where healthcare is right now. It's it's a, it's a, it's a, like a, 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 another perfect storm almost. Um, you can't look at this as kind of your goal. If it, it, it was total luck. The yeah, whole, yeah. I, I'm going into medicine to be a TV star. <laughs> and and uh, so that's number one. Number two, I what I was hoping would happen, the reason why we did it, the epiphany of doing this to begin with, and the, and the reason why the, the general thesis statement to do this to begin with, is that I had just felt that um, healthcare in general have been a, done a terrible job at marketing itself. They are afraid. They're afraid to let people in. That's because a lot of people are doing bad things. And, it, you know, I knew we were legit and I had no, I had nothing to hide. That's, that was us. But many places aren't like that. There's a lot of stuff that's being done inappropriately and, and infighting. And, you, you know, this, our, our department just happened to be perfect for this because of our culture, number one. Number two, I also wanted to show that we're doing good things. We're not always perfect. We, we're not always what they think we're supposed to be. And most people do well. But I think it's when view, my kids were growing up and you know, see what they look up to, whether it's you know, some YouTube star or the Kardashians or an athlete or a musician, which take nothing away from them. They're very talented. Well, you, in reality, people, you can make that decision. They certainly mark, they're talented at marketing themselves. But well, the if you're famous for being famous, you're not worth anything. Well, they're, they're beholden to the things that I don't find interesting. Like the fact that people are saying hello to me doesn't really matter, but that's what that is. It's just forcing... It's just to three orders of magnitude. That's all that really is. Right. And if living like that's horrible because how do you scale that? And what if it doesn't work? And then you have to work with social media and getting it and how many likes you have. And it's terrible. Yeah. What a terrible way to live. But the, in the end, that's what this was. It was just let people in to see what you could. So a young person would consider doing this someday. 
that they would say, you know what? I want to be like that. That's a good thing to do with my life. That was the reason why we did the show. That is the perfect answer is to help create a new generation of awareness and cogence and empathy and just a different dogmatic approach to why medicine matters to you. I would even say it's, I'm not trying to create empathy because that's, I think, I'm not sure if you can. What I'm trying to do is catch people when they have it and when it's in them and make it cool and identify that you can do this and maintain that, that it doesn't have to go away. That's the yeah. thing. Going back to your original question, you know, the, this is about, yeah, you don't have to be a jerk and you can actually do really cool stuff and push your envelope and be ambitious and be a great doctor and still be empathetic. You can do that. Yeah, just channeling our origin of Benedict Cumberbatch, yeah. you know, as the douchebag Doctor Strange, it took him nearly dying to learn empathy. That's like I mean, the Doctor. Had, that that movie with Martin, Martin uh, with Bill Hurt, the Doctor. It was he got he was a, this crazy vast drove a Porsche, and then he got cancer, and it take it shouldn't take cancer. No, to it make shouldn't. Him. But apparently empathy is learnable if only by those extreme yeah. circumstances. We have to get cancer. Yes. Well, that's the truth. You know, doctors become patients and they finally wake up and I realize, know. oh my God, this sucks. You know, dude, really? Like it took yeah. you that took you to get cancer to figure that out? That's that's a shame, really. Yeah. David Langer, chairman of the Department of Neurosurgery at Lenox Hill Hospital, star, I'm gonna say star, <laughs> of the legitimately acclaimed Netflix series of the same name Lenox Hill. This has been just cathartic and all things incredibly full circle for me thank you so I'm much i'm really thankful for the opportunity you're a great guy your uh, your experience is the listen to yours is incredibly valuable too so congratulations to you and what you're doing you're doing great you're doing great work thanks that's all for today folks if you like the show be sure to subscribe leave a review follow us on social and tell all your friends to listen out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.